Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim Desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just a show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, let's uh, turn our attention now to climate change and its real-world implications. Christopher Flavel is our climate policy reporter for Bloomberg. And Christopher, thank you for being uh, with me. Uh, tell us the story about those people who live in certain areas of Louisiana. They're packing up because of the changes wrought by climate change. Yeah, and thanks for having me on the show, Pim. Louisiana has, for a few years been the the leader in the U.S. in terms of dealing with climate change, not because it wants to, because it has to. Its land is sinking faster than anywhere else in the country. And so they're forced to come up with these really, in some cases, radical ideas. There's a huge swath of Louisiana around the delta of the Mississippi River where land is sinking so fast and the sea is rising so fast that people have to struggle with flooding almost all the time. As a result, the state is trying to figure out how and when to move people out of those areas, and even more radical, and no one else is doing this, how to figure out to ensure that no one else moves back in. No one, no other state that I'm aware of is trying anything like this. Tell us about the money that's involved, because we'll get to the uh, individual stories in a second, but this costs money to do, and where does the money come from? So I, I, think, I think the approach in Louisiana is figure out their strategy first, and then worry about money uh, because it's a long-term problem. And, and I think their idea is the cost of inaction would be huge as well. So the assumption is they'll find the money. I think that's probably true. There'll be a mix of federal funding. It's federal funding that that started the, the program that I was writing about, the LA Safe program. Uh, they're also getting money still from the BP oil spill. And look, Louisiana's argument is, is they get so much federal disaster money from FEMA after hurricanes and from HUD that instead of using that money to keep on trying to rebuild people's lives where they are, it makes more sense to move them out of harm's way. That's a, that's sort of a cliche. You hear that all around the country, especially after this year's hurricane season. Louisiana is really trying to make good on that and say, 
what would it mean on a broad scale? Uh, not just rebuilding in different parts of the neighborhood, but really rebuilding miles away from where you were and emptying out entire swaths of the state. How many people would this, uh, this affect? Do you have any idea? Yeah, I put that question to the state officials behind this program. The amount of land they're looking at is, is enormous. It's, it's bigger than Delaware and Rhode Island. Uh, and the number of people who live on that land, they guess, is about 60,000 people. Now, they are only looking, at least right now, at trying to move those who live outside of the levy system. And they don't know what share of that 60,000 would be in that category, would be outside of the levies. Uh, it could be it could be a few thousand. It could be tens of thousands. Um, but you know what? No one has tried anything on that scale. So even if it's just a thousand people, that would be uh, just a groundbreaking idea. And I think the big question is going to be how much pushback will they get? Where would they get the pushback from? The individuals, the people who are actually going to be displaced? To my great surprise, being down there a few days this week and talking to people in these areas, I got a pretty strong sense that people who who the state is trying to help, they realize what's going on. They are not in denial. They know that the flooding risk is so bad, they're going to have to move eventually. I think the pushback might come from developers who probably are aware, likewise, that in Louisiana this is real, but might be concerned about a precedent. It's one thing if Louisiana does this. If other states facing similar flood risk, and there's a lot of them, start saying, which parts of our geography should we declare off-limits? To new development, that could be a real issue for developers, for realtors, uh, for for commercial in- industries that want to locate here. So I think they'll be wondering, like the rest of us, how far will this go? Christopher, is the, is the unintended consequence of hurricanes and flooding that people become more aware of whatever the reason for these uh, catastrophes, they're catastrophes that are going to ruin their lives, their property, and as a result, they are more inclined to go along with the idea to move out. Yeah, I think definitely there's a there's some sort of relationship between people being repeatedly hit by these disasters and being open to more and more um, uh, far-reaching solutions. It's not a straight line. Often after one big event, people will say, it happened once, it probably won't happen again. But after enough repeated disasters, uh, my reporting says there's a real shift in what people are willing to accept, and in what local officials are willing to endorse. A plan that might work in Louisiana would, for the moment, be a really, really tough sell in California or Maryland or Virginia or New York State. Uh, But as time goes on, and Louisiana looks less like an outlier uh, and more like our future, I think there'll be more appetite to say, is it working there in Louisiana? And if it is, should we try it where we are? Christopher, isn't there a federal designation that would allow people to apply for federal assistance if there was some kind of natural disaster and that if that's taken away, that's just another push in the direction of leaving? Yeah, there's there, there's a designation um, called the under the Coastal Barrier Resources Act that was meant to protect areas that haven't been developed along the coast and keep them undeveloped. Louisiana is saying, let's apply that to areas that already have homes on them, which is a really radical idea. And it would say, we are not going to help you if you're in trouble. So you better leave because if you don't, you'll be on your own. It's it's a really, a very strong push for people to get out of these areas. Thanks very much. Christopher Flavel, our climate policy reporter for Bloomberg on how Louisiana is moving people out of areas that are ravaged by climate change. 
we've got something uh, perhaps more uh, more important, which is food. You can't exist without that. And Alan Stillman knows a lot about food and serving people. He is a restaurateur. He's also the founder of Quality Branded Partners. And uh, he may be better known as the founder of Smith & Walensky, but he's also the founder of TGI Fridays. Alan, thank you very much for coming into the studio. No, Appreciate you're more than welcome. Thanks for having me. Let, let, I want you to begin by telling the story of how you started in the business with TGI Fridays. Yeah, my relationship to the restaurant business was exactly zero, but my relationship to having a beer on the way home was at least once a week. And I corner First Avenue and 63rd Street in Manhattan, had a bullet hole in the window, typical First Avenue bar. And while drinking my beer, I said to the bartender, you know, there's an awful lot of young people that live in this area. You got stewardesses, you got models, you got pilots. I wonder if you put some sawdust on the floor and hung some Tiffany lights, wouldn't all those people come in here? And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I walked away and walked out. And I came back about 10 days later and he said, hey, aren't you the guy that wanted to hang Tiffany? I said, I don't want to hang anything. I suggested it to you. And he said, well, you ought to do it. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, why don't you do it? And I said, yeah, it's not a bad idea. I said, who's the owner of this corner place? He said, well, that's me. And 15 minutes later, I owned a bar. And it was called the Good Tavern. And I immediately said in my mind, I now need a name. And the name turned out to be TGI Fridays. And the rest of the story is as it is for about uh, 1,200 units around the world today. And it's not as if this particular venture was your last, obviously, because you sold TGI Fridays and you decided you liked the business so much, you're going to expand even more. Tell us about how that went. Well, I actually uh, expanded it while it was around in New York City and I built uh, 10 or 12 of them around the country. But I also built Sundays, Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays. I was going to say, you have an affinity for Dave's of the Week. And yeah, then I, then I got out of the business for a while and uh, left those. I still owned it, but I, went, I lived over the South of France. And uh, that was great six months. Uh, I had uh, gotten married and I had our four-year-old with us and we had a very good time. But I also then learned about food and wine. And coming back to New York City, I put the two together because I didn't know that much about the food end of it, but I did learn a lot about wine. And I discovered that all the steakhouses in New York City were terrific steakhouses, and they were the best in the world, but none of them had wine lists. You'd walk in, and they'd say, what would you like, red or white? And it would come in a tumbler. And I said, you know, it doesn't really fit for a glass of great red wine. They don't change that. So I decided I was going to open up a steakhouse. And luckily enough, there was a big recession. I bought the corner of 49th Street and 3rd Avenue, and we still own the corner of 49th Street and 3rd Avenue. And Smith Walensky is now 40 years old this year. Happy birthday. Congratulations. Thank you very much. 40-year-old uh, restaurants don't exist very often. Uh, it's a good thing to have. And went from there. What do you believe to be one of the biggest differences from when you started Smith & Walensky's and the way it operates now? Well, certainly wine, because almost every great steakhouse has a good to great wine list. And I believe that people associate great red wine with great red meat. And that never happened 40 years ago. There was no such thing. So I think that's a very, very big difference. And I think Didn't this, you start National Wine Week? 
Uh, yes, I did. National yeah, wine. And, and I remember there was a story about you actually transporting something like a million dollars worth of wine in a Brinks armored truck. Yes, we did that too. Well, we, we, we kind of have a lot of fun with this stuff. I mean, it, the restaurant business is one of the most difficult businesses in the world. And it's not only difficult to make money, but it's difficult just to stay open. So you need to come out with uh, ideas and with all sorts of public relation and marketing gimmicks, if you will, in order to keep people interested in who you are, what you are. And about a year after we opened uh, Smith & Walensky, we discovered somebody was trying to sell a wine collection, which we bought. And after we've spent a billion dollars on the wine collection, we decided, well, why don't we transport it by Brink's truck to the front of Smith & Walensky, which worked, and we got a couple of billion dollars worth of publicity for it, along with the million dollars worth of wine. That whole idea of being a showman and an entertainer and uh, a host, it, that has become a much more important factor, it seems, in the restaurant industry. Uh, I'm not sure that that's true anymore. It was going back before all of the uh, new technology. The new technology has taken away a lot from the showmanship of the restaurant business because... Uh, the methodology of putting it together a restaurant, to making a reservation, to how you get a reservation, to getting into restaurants, has taken away quite a bit from the showmanship of restaurant touring. It hasn't taken away from the showmanship of chefing. The chefs still rule the market, and that is quite interesting. They're sort of the artists of the food world. Tell us about your son, Michael, and uh, why did he decide to follow in your footsteps, or did you not, were you not able to dissuade him from entering no, the No, it's actually the opposite. Uh, there, was no, there was no persuasion involved. Michael graduated from Brown University and uh, was looking around for something autistic to do, and he was definitely not interested in the restaurant business. And a couple of years later, he came to me and he said, you know, I'm beginning to think maybe there's a little bit of art form in the restaurant business. And I said, well, if you don't have any art form in the restaurant business, you might as well not be in it because we're in the high end of the restaurant business. And Michael decided he wanted to come on in. I then turned to my good friend Danny Myers and said, Danny, put him to work for a year or so, which he did. Michael then came with us. He traveled around the United States opening up Smith & Walensky's. And for the last 10 years, he has run a restaurant company that he sort of transferred from what we had into the Quality Restaurant Group. And he's opening his own take on high-end restaurants, Quality Meats, Quality Italian, and he is also running around the country. He's opened in Denver. He's about to open up in Chicago. So uh, he did it by mistake. As I did it by mistake, and so far it's worked out wonderfully. He loves what he's doing, and he's fantastic at it. Well, you're getting us ready for lunch. Thanks very much. Uh, Alan Stillman is a restaurateur, of course, a founder, quality branded partner, founder of Smith & Walensky's, founder of TGI Fridays. He knows all about the restaurant industry. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. 
No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Well, we want to know the real intentions of Boeing and whether they will be uh, acquiring Embraer. Here to help us understand the situation is George Ferguson, our senior aerospace and defense and airlines analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. George, always a pleasure. Why would Boeing be interested in acquiring this Brazilian manufacturer of aircraft? Hey, Pim. Yeah, so as we look at it, we think that... um the Bombardier Airbus uh, sort of tie-up with the C-Series earlier this year would be the reason. You know, so uh, if you recall, Bombardier uh, faced with tariffs on bringing the C-Series into the U.S. uh, basically you know, gave the the program to Airbus, and now Airbus can go out and market airplanes to airlines from about 140 to just over 200 seats. That's their A320, and they can offer the C series, which which an airline can use for 100 to 130, 140 seats. We think that uh, you know what what Boeing might be doing here is looking to blunt Airbus's ability to market two airplanes like that. You know, if they had a tie-up with Embraer, they could. Uh, they can market to airlines and airplanes, two airplanes, one, uh, two families, I should say, one that would go from 75 to about 110, 15 seats, and another that uh, could uh, go from 130 up to you know, 200. So we think it gives them sort of the same product palette as uh, as Airbus. And okay. Well, would that be at. like the in terms of products, we're mm-hmm. talking about what? The Embraer 195, the different variants of that, and then maybe even the smaller, the 175? Yeah. I mean, the neat thing about Embraer is that Embraer's, um, their primary airplane, the E-Jet, uh, has the 175, like you said, to the 195. They're in the middle of refreshing it, so they're putting new engines on it. They're making it slightly larger. And yeah, that that airplane can uh, can operate you know, from sort of 75 seats to 130. The other really neat thing about it is that 175 is very very successful selling into regional airlines in the United States. They buy the majority of airplanes, I would say, that are less than 130 seats. They can only operate airplanes that are 76 seats or less due to uh, clauses in the pilot contracts at the main airlines that they fly for. And so that airplane, the one. 75 is very successful because of its of, of its product placement, and that would be uh, potentially in Boeing's uh, lineup to market to airlines. Yeah, well, Air Canada Express, I think they all they fly for, as just one example. The uh, the Embraer 175. Uh, does Boeing really need this deal? Because I thought that Boeing was putting a lot of effort be- behind the new 737, the Max, and the focus has been on not just the aircraft, but on making it more fuel efficient and reducing the cost of operating the actual aircraft. Uh, agreed. Uh, you know, agreed on that's what the focus has been. It's interesting. I, I wouldn't think this would have been this uh, interesting to Boeing. So, you know, really what we've seen demand in the marketplace has been that airlines have been looking to to fly larger airplanes. Pilot sal- salaries have been going up, and they'd like to, you know, um, expense that over more seats in the airplane. That's one of the ways they're sort of combating rising expenses. And so we've seen airlines, again, moving to larger and larger airplanes. We haven't seen a lot of orders for airplanes from 100 to 130 seats. So it kind of looks like a market to us that is, you know, betwixt and between. It's not there yet, maybe. 
Yeah, and you know, but they keep stretching the size of the 737 and A320s, right? The latest iterations of those two narrow bodies at Boeing and Airbus are larger than their predecessors. Right. And therefore, the efficiency, um, you know, the efficiency point gets pushed higher. So this might be a response to sort of that continuing increase of 737 and A320. Airlines may, you know, if they're if they're running to to less dense markets, they may really need something more efficient underneath that 150 seat point, and and the Embraer 190, 195, and the C Series 100, uh, 300 could be that answer. So I think Boeing might be looking a little further down the road than you know we we see evidence in orders at, at uh, you know at their ability to compete in that space and offer a product. Okay, you got to give me your thoughts though on the fact that the Brazilian government is still involved in. Embraer. It started as a government-financed company, military contracts, for example. The government of Brazil has said already, at least according to one Brazilian newspaper, that majority control for Boeing, not necessarily going to happen. Yeah, I think this is going to be a really hard deal to put together, and it's not going to look like a wholesale takeover by anybody. It's it, it, If it gets done, it'll look like a venture, and that's exactly the, the reason. You know, it's uh, Embraer is Brazil's most important defense contractor. They're their aerospace national champion. Uh, the Brazilian government does have a golden share in it, so they, they can decide, uh, you know, what the fate of the company is. And, you know, they want it for high-tech aerospace jobs. They want to foster high-tech aerospace jobs in Brazil. Obviously, letting Boeing buy the whole thing and take it home isn't going to help them much. I don't think Boeing wants to take it home, anyways. Um, I think there's going to be, you know, there's always a lot of politics around defense contractors and things like that. The defense business doesn't make a lot of money, and Embraer also has a bizjet business that doesn't make a lot of money. And I don't think Boeing really wants those businesses. So I think this has to become sort of co- some sort of complex structure that might get the Brazilian government, the aims they want out of this company, and give Boeing the opportunity to market the um, the Embraer uh, you know, aircraft. Well, thanks very aircraft. much. It, it makes a lot of sense, and uh, thanks for keeping an eye on this topic, and we know we're going to come to you in the future about it. Much appreciated. George Ferguson is our Senior Aerospace Defense and Airlines Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Well, here to help us understand what's going on in the housing market as it relates to the uh, tax overhaul bill that the president has just signed is Jonathan Miller. He is the president and chief executive of Miller Samuel. Jonathan, great to have you with us. What do you make? Great to be here. What do you make of uh, the future for the? Uh, well, let's start with the high end, high cost markets such as uh, Manhattan, uh, Westchester County, and also other areas around the country, whether they be in Connecticut or uh, in the state of Massachusetts or California. High cost uh, property. What's going to happen uh, as a result of this tax overhaul plan? Oh, I think there'll be downward pressure on uh, housing prices uh, as you skew higher in price across the U.S. Uh, the the basic uh, theme of this bill, as it relates to housing, favors uh, being a landlord over home ownership in general. And you know, I think I think the way to think of it is that um, you know, someone that's buying a home uh, has a certain safe 
financial footprint in terms of what they can afford as a payment. And so if you could just think of it as you're adding some additional costs, meaning reduced um, deductions in the context of mortgage interest above $750,000, a $10,000 cap on real estate taxes, those sort of creep into that payment as a share and reduces principal and interest. Um, I don't think it's catastrophic in terms of, I don't mean to exaggerate it, but it certainly applies downward pressure to these higher-end housing markets far more than it would say in the middle in the Midwest where you know a home price might be $175,000. Jonathan, will that pressure actually turn into lower prices or will it just be a bargaining chip when it comes to negotiations? So it's interesting because one of the things that came out of the discussions on the tax bill was at the yet you know in the higher cost markets, you know, that the higher cost of housing would be offset by the uh, the um, bigger tax cuts, and um, and you know, human beings or homeowners don't think that way in the sense that uh, they don't look at all their their net worth in one bucket and say, you know, because I'm getting a tax cut, I I can overpay for my home, because what's going to happen is, you know, there's a saying that housing prices are sticky on the downside, and and what happens as there's some sort of change, the prices. Draw or decline slowly simply because transactions uh, slow down because sellers, um, uh, you know, buyers are immediately adaptable to changes that favor them. Sellers tend to take a year or two. So I think what we're really looking at over the next year, year and a half, is this sort of figuring out between buyer and seller what the actual new value is in these markets. So this puts the buyer in a better position. It, it absolutely does, uh, because uh, it's just that they may not, their demand may not be satiated initially, simply because uh, the sellers, you know, you know, this is a, uh, you know, 100 years of uh, home ownership as sort of the federal, um, um, you know, the federal push in this whole American dream concept. Uh, High-cost housing markets on the east and west coast are more impacted by this, and it's going to take a year or two uh, for the two parties to sort of figure it out. Um, uh, you know, this is this is sort of like literally what we just went through the last couple of years. We've had at the high end of the market uh, or higher-cost markets, sellers have had a, a phenomenon uh, that I've called aspirational pricing, where they're asking way more than what, what the buyers are willing to come up with. And just only in 2017, we've started to see equilibrium between expectations. Now we have this new factor that will you know, undergo a, a period of a couple of years of uh, testing out before it it settles in. Could this be a positive in the for the long term that people will not be burdened with mortgages that they cannot afford that would be so linked to their income? I, I, absolutely, in the long in the long term, certainly, uh, you know, there's a lot been made of sort of runaway, you know, high end housing prices. We did see some reigning in of that. I call 2014 nationally peak luxury. And, uh, you know, and, and since then, we've seen a correction at the very high end of the market. Generally, overall affordability, you know, one small benefit in the New York metro area 
that whose economy is uh, heavily dependent on Wall Street, uh, counting for about 25% of the uh, the wages, is uh, you know, higher bonus comp with tax cuts is a is you know maybe a, a modest uh, improvement or you know help for the high end, but I don't really see it as anywhere is significant with the regulatory overlay um, that we didn't get when you compare it against sort of pre-financial crisis. Got it. Thank you very much. Uh, Jonathan Miller is the president and the chief executive of Miller Samuel talking about how it is going to be, at least uh, for now, going to be a buyer's market. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.